from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing an interview with Phyllis and Jean Unterschutz. Four years ago, I interviewed Phyllis and Jean, and at that time, they were traveling the U.S. in their RV and drafting stories about the work in the field of race unity to be developed into a book. Well, they're back, this time on a road trip promoting their published book, Longing, Stories of Racial Healing. So here is my interview with Phyllis and Jean Unterschutz discussing their new work. So the last time I interviewed you was four years ago. And I think at that time, you had already started traveling about the country, helping communities, especially in the area of race unity. And you had the beginnings of a manuscript, I think, for a book. And four years later, you have a book that's published. And... Phyllis, what's the name of the book? The title of the book is Longing, Stories of Racial Healing. And why did you choose the title Longing? It's uh, cool that you ask that because when we do our introduction at the beginning of a reading, I always address that. We use the word longing because we believe that we are one human family and that the longing to connect with one another as parts of that human family is deposited within us at the moment of our creation. And so we all walk around with this longing inside of us. However, so many things have happened to us in our history that make it difficult for us to recognize that longing, that sometimes we don't realize it's there. And sometimes even when we do recognize it, we don't know how to act upon it. We don't know how to reach out and respond to the longing in an authentic way. So what are the symptoms of responding to that longing but not in an authentic way? I think uh, an inauthentic way to respond is by shutting down and being afraid. I think sometimes we feel the desire to reach out to somebody, but then we're afraid maybe we're going to say something that's inadvertently racist, or we're going to say something that's going to make us look stupid, or we're just going to be too anxious to know how to behave authentically. So instead of responding, we do the opposite, and we back off or we shut down. Now, what was the stimulus for you to even address the issue of race unity? Where does that come from? I think it comes from two places, actually. Uh, on one level, it's, it's a part of our sacred texts as Baha'is, so we have this mandate within our scripture to address the issue of racial prejudice, and very specifically to address the disunity between blacks and whites in this country. So we had this spiritual mandate on one level, and that was kind of what made us start talking about racial unity to begin with. But on another level, a more personal level, uh, when we were traveling, and we've been traveling since 97, was when we left our hometown and moved into an RV. And in the course of our travels, it's been specifically African Americans that we have met along the way 
that have taken us into their hearts, into their families and their lives, and trained us about how race affects them on a day-to-day basis. And at the same time that they were telling their own stories, they were helping us understand about our own racial conditioning that, that sits at an unconscious level. And so it was that training in those relationships that made us decide to focus specifically on racial unity between blacks and whites in this country. And so when did the idea of a book start bubbling up? I can think of several times when it bubbled up. It's hard to say when it it bubbled up to the point where we said, okay, we're really going to do this. I know that we were telling stories in Nat Rutstein's living room one evening. After we were done telling our stories, he took us into the kitchen and he said, you've got a book here. So that was a very important happening for us. But I think probably I would say the reason is, is that as we were telling stories in our travels, stories about our own racial conditioning and how we became aware of it and what we did about that awareness. It was specifically our black friends and acquaintances who said to us, would you please get these stories out there so that other people, and I believe they specified other white people, could hear these stories and benefit from what you've learned. And so many folks asked us that, that at some point it became something more than a dream and it became a mandate. Now, has there been any, any sort of repercussion that a couple of white folks are putting together this book of race unity from, let's say, the African-American community? I guess the first thing, it sounds like Jean has got some answer for this too, but I'll, I'll tell you what I think, is that I think when African-Americans come to hear us read, they are sometimes coming with a wait-and-see attitude, They've heard a lot of stuff before, and they've not seen that stuff make any difference. And so they keep coming. They do keep coming. <laughs> but sometimes there's a there's an almost a show-me, a Missouri State sort of a thing, the show-me state. Mm-hmm. Let's see what these folks actually have to say, and let's see if it makes any difference. That's what we've run into. But we've had so much support across the board from the African-American community, not just the Baha'i community, but just folks we've met all around the country. They show Mm -hmm. up in groves to hear Mm -hmm. these stories. Gene, do you have anything to add there? I concur completely with what Phyllis has just shared. The reason I was kind of chuckling when you asked that question is because of all the people that come to our our readings, it is the African-Americans that resonate most positively. And when we're reading our stories, Uh, We've shared this between Phyllis and and me. We look out into the audience, we look at the African-Americans' faces, and we can tell if what we're saying is somewhat of the truth or not, you know, and that's very important to us because their reactions to what we're sharing are real confirmations Mm -hmm. that we're offering something of value, not only for African-Americans, but particularly for other white folks. This is the whole reason that we wrote this book is because we learned we are white, we learn something about our own racial conditioning. We're sharing stories just about ourselves, so we're not lecturing on anybody. But if somebody sees some similarities in their own lives, uh, maybe they can take some of the stuff that uh, we've learned and are, have written about in our book and apply it to their own lives. Mm-hmm. So the response from African Americans has been good. Like Phyllis mm-hmm. says, you know, you can tell people come in and they, they have this kind of 
stern look on their yeah. face like, okay, what do you got to say? You, you haven't been in my shoes, so how can right. you say what you're well, saying? Exactly. Where's, well, your, where's your authority come from? That's right, but we've been in our shoes. And that's, that's a, a big part of the issue here in the United States is that white folks are impacted by racism as well. And I don't want to quantify it and say, you know, as much as or less than, but we have been impacted by it because of the brainwashing that we've been subjected to. And that goes to um, our education about who we are as people and who others are. And so, we, you know, we've got a whole history of that. We don't talk about that history too much in our book or in our, our readings because people know that stuff pretty much by now, uh, hopefully. But we refer to it. And the purpose of the reference is to indicate that we got here where we are with all of these problems around race because of our history between blacks and whites. So you mentioned that the Baha'i faith tends to emphasize the concept of race unity. Could you elaborate on how the Baha'i faith does that? Yes. The writings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, talk specifically about the oneness of humanity. The writings of Abdu'l-Bahá, his son, and our exemplar talk about the relationship between blacks and whites back in the time when Abdu'l-Bahá was here in the, in the beginning of the century in the United States. And he did things that were unusual back then. He demanded that blacks and whites sat together at the table, sat a black man next to himself at the head of the table, and did things that caused some stir in the Baha'i community at the time because folks were not used to bringing black and white together in one meeting. He was also the uh, inspiration for Louis Gregory, who was an African-American Baha'i who traveled around the southern part of the United States, particularly in the 30s and 40s, and did these talks about racial amity at a time when people didn't talk about stuff like that in mixed groups. And so we have a lot of, of inspiration, and we have a lot of guidance and examples uh, specifically, we have the writings of Shoghi Effendi, who is the guardian of the Baha'i faith, and he talks about the roles that blacks and whites need to engage in in order to help overcome racial prejudice. And to the whites, he says that speaking of our relationship with people of African descent, he says that we should convince them through our intimate, spontaneous, and informal association with them of the genuineness of our friendship. How does the rest of it go, Gene? And the, and the sincerity of our intentions. And to master our impatience at the lack of any responsiveness on the part of a people who have received for such a long period of time such slow healing wounds. And so we have very specific guidance on how we should behave. Talk me through the journey that you had to go through from the point of four years ago when you had the manuscript, I guess, or you were still putting together the manuscript, to today where, when did you, when was the book published? The book was published on May 1st. Okay, so to May 1st when the book was published. What, what did that journey look like? It, it was a sporadic journey. Um, I have a funny experience every so often when I look back at an old, old email that I've written to somebody like six years ago, and I'll say, we're working really hard on our book. <laughs> And I realized that we were playing at our book. We weren't working hard. About two years ago, we were in San Diego, which is a place where we often spend the winters. And we were playing at our book. And we were so engaged in the activities of the Baha'i community that we weren't spending very much time on the book at all. 
and we finally realized, besides that, I had uh, RV-itis, which is uh, what happens to you when you've lived in an RV with another person for 13 years, and I needed out. So we uh, went up the coast to Oregon, uh, and we found a little apartment, put the RV in storage for a year and a half. We found an apartment with separate studios in it so that we each had a workplace, and we engaged with our editor, and we got very, very serious about it, and that, and we focused hours, many, many hours a day on revising, editing, and compiling the stories of the book. And then on May 13th, we left the Oregon coast and headed out on our year-long book tour, took the RV back out of storage, moved our belongings into it, and headed back to San Diego and L.A., which was the first uh, readings that we had. So this is a year-long tour? Okay. That's right. And so uh, what's the route of the tour? You know the route. Okay, I'm the, <laughs> I'm the itinerary person. Well, we went, as I said, down the coast to the L.A. and San Diego area, through Phoenix, New Mexico. Uh, then we were in the Dallas area, up into Columbia and St. Louis, Missouri. And we uh, spent a while in central Illinois and the Chicago area. From there to Michigan, where we had the great honor of reading for 70 folks at the Kellogg Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan. That was a high point. Then we were in upstate New York, and now we're here in Massachusetts. And from here we'll be going, we'll be doing a, uh, a very wonderful event in Boston. That's going to be for the National Center for Race Amity, affiliated with Wheelock College. After that, we'll be going down into D.C., then further down the coast into the Deep South, and we'll spend most of the fall and winter in the states of the Deep South. And then finally in the spring, we'll head back across the southern United States and end up back in San Diego, I'm assuming, sometime in the late spring. What do you want the reader to get from reading your book? Good question. That's the whole reason we wrote the book. <laughs> I mean, originally we started sharing stories. We wanted to really get some clarity on the fact that we as white folks are dealing with this racial conditioning and that is preventing us from making our contribution to this very important problem. We know as Baha'is that, uh, that we were, as an American Baha'i community, we were addressed and we were told that it is the most vital and challenging issue confronting our community. So you can kind of extrapolate from that since we Baha'is come from all areas of the non-Baha'i world into this little community. So we can kind of extrapolate that it's the most vital uh, and challenging issue for the larger community as well. I think you can do that. <laughs> Anyhow, it means that we have, that all of us, and if we go by how Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the faith, addresses the Baha'i community, it's particularly urgent issue between black and white Americans. And so black people have been working on this issue from the, from day one, from the start. White people are kind of slow to take up the issue, to take up the work, although there is, as uh, Dr. Richard Thomas r refers to it, this other, this quote-unquote other tradition of white people doing race unity work. and goes all the way back to the Quakers, the abolitionists, and goes right through the civil rights days and continues today with efforts of people doing workshops and uh, you know, even to the work in the office place where somebody's interrupting a racial joke or a racial slur or trying to shed some, some fresh understanding on this important issue. 
So the book, we're trying to get people to talk about this, particularly white people. That's, that's our target audience because we don't talk about it enough. People of color, African-Americans in particular, talk about it all the time. If you ask them, they'll say that. Evidence that we don't talk about it a lot has been um, illustrated in the recent uh, AC360 experiments or redoing of the uh, Dow experiments back in the 50s. Maybe you could elaborate on that, Gene? Yeah, well, in the 50s, uh, there was an experiment. They took white children and black children and presented them with the option of choosing a, a doll, a white doll or a black doll. And the majority of both groups picked the white doll as prefer a preferable. Uh, recently, Anderson Cooper, CNN, they, they redid this experiment using a chart, a piece of cardboard or, or something with illustrations of five children in kind of cartoon form. The only difference was that they, they ranged in complexion from light to dark. And then they asked these children, I think the first group was like a, a group of five-year-olds. They asked them different questions, and maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit, Phyllis. That's like your... some of the questions they asked, or they would say, show me the ugly child, show me the beautiful child, show me the smart child, or the stupid child. I remember one of the questions was, show me the child with a skin color that adults do not like. So many of the children pointed to the dark child when they said, show me the stupid child, for example, and the researcher would say, without any criticism in her voice, she would say, okay, I asked you to show me the stupid child, and you pointed to this one. Why did you point to that one? And the child would say, because she's dark. Very offhanded, matter-of-fact sort of a way, without any judgment necessarily in their voices. But it just made it clear that these four- and five-year-old children had already absorbed some very disturbing stereotypes about color. And one of the things that came out of this study when they interviewed some of the mothers, and I, I particularly saw an interview with a white mother who was very upset that her, her white child had shown this preference for lighter skin. And she said, I don't know why this, this is. You know, we don't have racism in our family, and we don't say bad things about people. And the question was asked, do you talk to your child about race at all? And the answer was, well, well, no, not really. You know, they didn't, as white, as a white family, they didn't see any reason why they would have to talk about it. Whereas the black families said, well, yes, we talk about it all the time. And so it, what it meant to us watching this report of this, inter, of this experiment was that if we do not talk to our children, we're leaving them vulnerable to the messages that are out there in, in the air that we breathe. Who knows where they're coming from at age four or five? Are they coming from the media or from their peers? Or is this just in the collective consciousness of our culture and they've absorbed it somehow? So we must talk to them in order to give them some defenses against the brainwashing that will assault them if they don't have any knowledge. So I'm speaking with Phyllis and Jean Unterschutz, and the name of their book that they published is Longing... Stories of Racial Healing. How is the book laid out for the reader? There are 30 stories in this book. Of course, we begin with a, a preface and an introduction to kind of give people an idea of how we got started traveling and writing the book and also to give some of the main themes in the book. But then uh, after that, there are 30 stories, uh, half written by Jean and half written by myself. They're short stories. They're all true stories. 
And they're divided into three sections. The first few come from the years before we started traveling. And their purpose is to kind of give the reader an idea of where we were at before we started on this journey. The second section covers a, a period of a few years when we were moving about very intently and beginning to get a clue, beginning to realize how much we did not know and how much we still had to uh, address in our own selves. And then the last section of the book is a, a third phase of our journey when we're, we've gotten some understanding about it and we're getting deeper into these issues, examining them at a level that was beyond what we were capable of doing in the first couple sections of the book. And the stories alternate for the most part between mine and Jean's. And most of the stories are followed by a commentary in which we attempt to kind of clarify or break down some of the issues that are presented in the stories. Is there a favorite that you could share with me? I, I would be delighted. I don't know if it's my favorite because the one that's my favorite I don't want to share on the air because I don't... <laughs> you want people I, to buy the book and read it. You betcha, yeah. I don't want to give it away. Uh -huh. And my favorite does change from time to time, but I'm going to say for the most part my favorite is a story called The Promise. Mm -hmm. And it's about an interaction that I had with a waitress, an African-American waitress, when we were in the Chicago suburbs once, where we were having a wonderful conversation and such an open flow of warmth between us. And then I said something, and she shut down and withdrew. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure out what had happened. And I thought back to a conversation I'd had with two black women several months before, and it gave me some insight. And so the story is about what I did with that mm -hmm. and how the waitress reacted to what I did. Mm, it was a teaching moment. Well, it was a teaching moment for me, that's for darn sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I will read one. Some of, some of these stories are kind of long to share on the air, but... Most of them take about 15 minutes or so to read, but I will share a couple parts of one of my stories that is called Hands. Hands is more a series of anecdotes than it is one story from beginning to end. So I could read the beginning and then one or two of these shorter anecdotes to give you a feeling for this story called Hands. How would that be? The story about hands, which part of the book is that? This is in the third section of the book. Okay, so this yeah. is more in the deeper it's, yeah, it says we're, aspects of race unity. Exactly. And maybe to African Americans, the response would be, it doesn't seem very deep Yeah, right, to no duh, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, frequently when we read these stories to, to white audiences, mm -hmm. they're saying, oh, I just never thought about that before, yeah. and now... I understand some things. Yeah, so yeah. before you start, it's just I'm just so aware of the deep chasm of what the U.S. looks like between white and black. Yeah, it's just it's like two people looking at two different places. Yeah, it's really quite amazing. And we often find ourselves looking at each other across this chasm and feeling the desire to behave towards one another in an intimate connected sort of a way, but not knowing how to do it. Gene, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I wanted to say what it made me think of is a, a, a venue in San Diego at a friend's office, and he had invited a bunch of people, and the folks that showed up were basically uh, African Americans. I think besides Phyllis and I, there were two other white folks there in a group of about 15. So there was a lot of honesty being shared, and I think the African Americans there felt 
a freedom to open up and really express themselves. There was actually a lot of healing that, that took place. I won't go into the details, but driving away from that venue, I said to Phyllis, things look different. I feel like I'm in a different reality. I've just kind of gone over a threshold into some other area, you know. And so one of the participants had her son with her, and he's, I think he's nine years old. He said the same thing to his mom mm. after the venue. So I knew, well, okay, he, he's, he's got true perception. <laughs> it's not influenced by a lot of philosophy and stuff or, or, or thoughts. I think that that's often the case, you know, is that there are, what you're alluding to is basically two different realities. And many times for us that who are white, perhaps it's a little bit intimidating to go into that other reality. But in fact, our reality is one. If these realities intersect somehow, I think that there'll be a lot of human lessons that we can learn and share with one another. In fact, I was thinking when you asked that question, what's your goal for the book or what's your purpose for the book? One of the things we hope that our black readers take away is a sense of hopefulness. And I'll stop with that. But one of the things that we hope our white readers take away is this idea that, well, maybe there's some information out there I wasn't aware of. That they might read our stories and say, oh, well, that's a different experience than I would have expected. Let me see, if I think about this differently, what might happen. We attempt to really debunk a lot of the stereotypes about black folks that are so rampant in our society. So we hope that people will read these stories and not only be induced to rethink what they've been told, but to try something new the next time they're in a relationship. All right, so Phyllis, why don't you read your choice? Okay, I'll read a few sections of this story called Hands. Actually, though I said everything in this book is a true story, this first little vignette of Hands is not. This okay. is a hypothetical incident. A sort of parable, I suppose. Something that never actually happened to me personally. I call it the little girl and the cookie. A white woman and her young daughter are walking together along a busy sidewalk, holding hands. Coming toward them is a man with dark colored skin. As the man approaches, the child becomes keenly aware of changes in her mother's body, and she begins to feel anxious. Mother's breathing quickens slightly and the child notices that they are walking just a little bit faster. Now she is conscious of the pulse pounding in her mother's fingers. The girl looks around to see what has frightened the one she relies on for protection, but she sees no indication of danger. She's confused and looks up at her mother's face for reassurance, but mother looks straight ahead, her expression giving no clue about the nature of the threat. She just squeezes her daughter's hand so tightly that it's starting to hurt. The child's own body is shaking now as she runs to keep up with her mother's lengthening steps. She has stopped trying to figure out what's wrong and is focused only on getting to safety. In the next moment, they have passed the man with the dark-colored skin. He continues walking down the sidewalk, going farther and farther away. Slowly, mother's grip relaxes. Her breathing and pace return to normal. The throbbing in her fingers subsides. The little girl's body relaxes, too. She's very relieved, 
not only because her mother is happy again, but also because now there is no more confusion in her mind. She received the message loud and clear. You see, no words were necessary. The squeeze of the hand contained a highly concentrated dose of all the mother's conditioning from her birth up to the present, transmitted in an instant directly into the child. The fear shot along the girl's nerves from her hand to her brain, where it bonded securely to the only other sensory input available, the image of a dark-skinned man. Because she was so young, the child did not have the capacity to evaluate this transmission. And because the message was sent by someone she trusted implicitly, it lodged in the deepest places of her mind, those most resistant to change. Some have called it the poison in the cookies. This transfer of unwarranted fear disguised as a legitimate urge to protect. Fortunately, every poison has an antidote, and our story is not yet ended. Perhaps the little girl can be healed by the very thing that delivered the toxin in the first place. Perhaps she can be healed by the touch of a hand. Something came to my mind okay. uh, as you were reading that, in that you've been doing this work now, what, 10 years? 13, 13 years. I mean, officially okay. 13. Right. We've so been you've on been the doing this work for 13 years. What has been your observation of the awareness of white folks to this issue in this 10 years? I think it varies widely. We've been in places where the people were so separated, and these are such majority white communities, that there's very little awareness at all a lot of fear, a lot of clinging to stereotypes, and a lot of denial, and very little desire to do anything about that. It ranges from that all the way to communities where we meet many, many white folks that are very intensely engaged in their community in efforts to heal racial disunity or racial injustice. So mm -hmm. I can't really make a blanket statement. I think right. it's all across the right. board. Do you have another one you'd like to... Yeah, this, this actually is a continuation of that first part that I read that I said was a hypothetical incident. And the following are true anecdotes. These are adapted from my journal entries. And these events took place in five different states over an eight-year period of our travels. And I'm not going to read all of these, but I thought I would just pick two or three short ones to kind of round out the story. Sure. So the first one took place right at the beginning of our travels in December of 1997 in North Carolina. Jean and I met today with Lawrence, and I guess I'll stop here and say that while these are all true, true, true stories, we have changed everybody's names. Okay. So if you think you know who it is, you might be right and you might not. <laughs> Certainly not Lawrence. <laughs> it's not Lawrence, <laughs> that much I can tell you. Jean and I met today with Lawrence, a member of the local Baha'i community. We had learned from my sister that he was a professional diversity trainer, and we called him a few days ago to introduce ourselves and ask him to have lunch with us this afternoon, hoping he could give us some advice on how to conduct our race unity workshops. During our meal, we talked mostly about the skills required to facilitate a discussion of race. We described some of the challenges we'd encountered, and he told us how he handles sensitive situations and deals with hostile workshop participants. I could not take my eyes off his hands. Dark brown, long-fingered hands. They punctuated his sentences with forceful gestures. 
then rested briefly on the table, and then flew back into the air to underscore a point. I was hypnotized by their movement and unable to focus on what he was saying, which is rare for me. I'm normally attentive to verbal detail. But even though I couldn't seem to stay with the discussion, I felt the intensity of his sharing, and I wanted to give something in return. So when he paused for a moment, I told him a story about myself, about some pain that I had endured long ago. When I finished, I suddenly felt embarrassed for disrupting the conversation with comments that were self-centered and irrelevant. But he was silent for a while, taking in what I had told him, and then he reached across the table and touched my face with that beautiful hand. Let's see, maybe I'll read one more short one here. Okay, well, this was one that uh, happened much more recently in February of 2006, and this was at the... Uh, in a city on the central Florida coast. At the post office today, when I had completed my transaction, the African-American woman who had served me said, Thank you for placing your money directly into my hand. It means a lot to me that you made physical contact between your fingers and my palm. I don't know what kind of day she'd had that left her in a place of such vulnerable honesty, but she went on to tell me how normally her white customers just dropped the money on the counter, refusing to touch her. I've heard from so many of my black friends that they experience this touchless exchange of money constantly and that every time it hurts. So at one point, I began to consciously place skin on skin, hoping to ease the pain of others' aversion. Apparently, I believed my touch had magical healing powers. I could never figure out, though, how to warn those who were causing that pain, because certainly they didn't realize that by hastily dropping coins on the counter and snatching away their uncontaminated hands, they were actually jabbing their fingers into an open wound. Over the years, I've changed a lot of the ways I relate to people of color. I still make sure to touch when exchanging money, but now my reason is hopefully much less pretentious. I do it now because I crave the contact, and I love the sight of beige on brown. I'm soothed by the flow of energy that tells me something is being given and received on a cellular level. Okay, Jean, now do you have one you'd like to share? All right, I'm going to read this story called, uh, or part of the story called The Electric Fly. I won't say much in preparation here, but I, I might say a few things afterwards. I'll finish my selection. I'm going to read an excerpt out of this story, and then I'll read the last two paragraphs of the commentary. Maybe I'll say a few words then. Okay. All right. In California, we met Don and Linda, members of a gospel choir that performed at a Baha'i Center on Martin Luther King Day. Phyllis was moved by the way Linda directed the choir and introduced herself after the celebration. The next evening, the four of us went out to dinner, and when we parted several hours later, we were excited about the potential of our new friendship. I feel like we've known you guys for years, Don said. Phyllis and I sang with Linda's choir, attended their church services, and went to Bible study classes. As our friendship developed, we went on shopping trips and met their kids and grandkids. They, in turn, met members of our family. Before we left California, we got together for dinner and talked about activities we could do during our next visit. About a year and a half later, we were in Tennessee and were just finishing breakfast when Phyllis's phone rang. Of course, of course, we would be delighted. Just a second, I'll tell Jean. Phyllis turned to me. It's Linda. 
She and Don are renewing their vows, and they want us to be in the wedding. Cool, I said. While the two women discussed details about the date, a rented tux for me, and Phyllis's bridesmaid dress and shoes, my mind wandered. I envisioned Phyllis and me dressed up in wedding finery, hanging out with the folks we had met in the church. We will probably be the only whites, I thought. I got a little heady. I felt privileged. After all, how many white folks do I know who have been part of a black wedding, in a black church, where everyone else is black, socializing after the ceremony, and, uh-oh, I hadn't thought about the dancing. Good grief, what am I going to do? I can't dance. Now I'm not so sure I want to be in the wedding. I'm doomed. I'm going to look bad. Everyone at the reception is going to laugh at me. Uh, Phyllis, let me talk to Don when you're finished with Linda. A few minutes later, she handed me the phone. Hey, Don, how you doing? Say, thanks for including us in your wedding. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, by the way, at the reception, there'll be uh, dancing, right? Oh, yes, my friend, we're going to have some fun. Uh, what kind of dancing? Well, we'll be definitely be doing the electric fly. Oh, great. Okay, man, take care. We'll see you when we get out there. When I put down the phone, I was hyperventilating. What's wrong with you? Phyllis asked. There's going to be dancing at the reception. Of course, that's just part of a wedding. Are you worried? I'm terrified. You know I can't dance. Well, you don't have to dance. Nobody's going to mind if you don't. No, I've got to. How will that look? The only white guy, and I'm not dancing. And Don said they're going to be doing the electric fly. What's that? No idea. Some kind of dance, I guess. Maybe we can find a video that teaches it. The next day, we went to one video store after another, looking for a recording of dance lessons. We're looking for a dance instruction video that includes the electric fly. Do you think you might have one? Hmm, the electric fly. Let me see. The clerk checked out the inventory. No, I'm sorry. Nothing. Have you tried the video store on the other side of town? At the last store we checked, the clerk said, The electric fly? Are you sure you don't mean the electric slide? Phyllis and I looked at each other. Maybe, we said. The store had one video that included, among various dance steps, the electric slide. We were saved. Or so we thought. Back home in our tiny trailer, we put the videotape into our 13-inch TV VCR that sat on a corner cabinet just inside the door. We had about three square feet of floor space on which to practice. The electric slide, we quickly learned, involves a lot of movement, side to side, front to back, and an energetic kick and spin so one is facing a different direction. While we bumped into each other and sent household items flying, Phyllis encouraged me to move my hips more. You're just moving your shoulders, and your neck is sticking out like this. She flexed her shoulder muscles like a wrestler and stuck out her chin, to demonstrate, for my benefit, just how hopelessly uncool I looked. An RV is a, w a vehicle on wheels and springs. Every time we attempted a dance move and stopped, the trailer continued to bounce. What might our fellow campers think was happening inside? Neither Phyllis's enthusiasm nor my fear of ridicule could sustain our effort to learn the electric slide under those conditions, and we could not bring ourselves to practice in any of our friends' family rooms. There had to be another solution. So there, you said there was a commentary you yeah. wanted to add to that? 
I'm just going to read it. Belonging is a basic human need. Group membership helps us understand who we are. But because of the universal process that is reshaping societies around the globe, we have to redefine what it means to belong. Today, it means being connected with people who are different, and not only with people who are just like us. My loss of a German identity is compensated for by the benefits of belonging to a bigger group, the human family. In this story, I was so eager to fit in that I learned the electric slide. Folks at the wedding reception appreciated my effort and welcomed me, but I wasn't expected to act black, walk in a certain way, dress differently, alter my speech, or shake hands in an unfamiliar way. And while I, a white man, was being accepted, I knew that all too often the acceptance is withheld when the tables are turned. Today, if any group is made to feel it doesn't belong, we have failed. So your mention of really the consciousness of belonging and that we're one human family is really a central tenet of the Baha'i faith. I've asked a number of Baha'is before they became Baha'is, what do they think their life would have looked like if they had not run into the Baha'i faith? And some said, well, there's no way I would have had this world-embracing vision of humanity. But I want to pose the question to you all, and if you could tell me what you could imagine your life would have taken you if you had not run into the Baha'i faith. I was very confused as a young man. I was about 25. I had gone through college, and I was just uh, pretty much lost. I think I even mentioned this in my last interview. Could be. <laughs> I was looking for some meaning. You know, this was the 60s, the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s. The common response of many young people to the question, uh, what do you want out of life, was I want to find myself. And I think that it's really valid in retrospect. We were lost. I think from generation to generation, and particularly in the last decades, there's been a, a, an increase in the pace of development or social evolution or whatever, however you want to term it, so that one generation to the next can differ very dramatically in terms of what issues are important, what one is struggling with within that generation. For us, it was getting a grasp of our identity. As a result, we were rebelling against the quote-unquote establishment and since have become members of that establishment that we were rebelling against. So I was part of that whole confusion of my generation, and I was just looking for something that made, made a lot of sense, gave structure to uh, all the chaos that I saw happening around me. And that, I found that in the Baha'i faith. You know, there was a reason for all the chaos. It was the collapse of a system that was corrupt and outdated, outmoded, using methodology that was no longer functional. And at the same time, I, I was able to perceive that there's something new growing up, some new growth. And that was very encouraging, and I wanted to be a part of that because I had tried different things. Nothing worked for me particularly. I wasn't really looking for a solution in religion. In fact, I had a, a fairly negative attitude about religion. And nevertheless, when I went to my first Baha'i meeting, there was something that cut through all of my cynicism, all of my suspicion about religious promises, you know, 
and, and grabbed hold of me. And I investigated it. I didn't just embrace it thoughtlessly. I took some time, several months, to uh, evaluate it and see if it was right for me. Phyllis? Such a difficult question to answer because it's hard to imagine my life going a different direction than the direction it has. But I know that had I not become a Baha'i, I would have a very difficult time explaining why I'm an optimistic person. Because I am optimistic by nature, and I was raised in a way both my... My parents taught me different things about life. My dad taught me a lot about justice. My mom taught me a lot about uh, love and, and optimism and relating to other people with positive expectations. My grandma was the same way. So I kind of uh, walked into my life expecting that people would be good, expecting the best from every situation, and I'm still that way. But if I were not a Baha'i, I would have no way to explain it. People would think I was nuts because it's difficult to look around us now and find reason to be optimistic. But because of Baha'u'llah's teachings about the inherent nobility of human nature and also because of his teachings about the inevitability of the coming together of humankind, the inevitability of peace in the world, uh, the eventual coming of the kingdom of God on earth. Because of these teachings, I have every reason in the world to be optimistic. And it allows me to interpret the bad things that I see, like Jean was referring to, these, these things that we see that are chaotic and negative. These are the birth pangs of a new world order. And so I walk confidently through my life, knowing that my optimism has a basis in reality, in spiritual truth. And that's a wonderful feeling. Having listened to Phyllis, I, I'm, I'm aware that um, I didn't quite answer your question. <laughs> but if I had not uh, found the Baha'i faith, I can, can see myself uh, being kind of a solitary person and very bitter, confused, and cynical, seeing no hope, pretty much uh, interpreting the events that happen on a daily basis as just life is rotten, having no clue to what the purpose of life is. You know, I feel like there is a purpose in life now. I know I'm pretty clear about what that purpose is, and that's what keeps me going, even with all of the, stu all of the collapse that we see happening around us. I feel confident that in the eventual outcome, I know that it's a bigger plan than a, than a man-made plan. It's a divine plan, and God's plan is not going to fail, no matter what we do here on his earth. <laughs> so I'm pretty confident about that, and I'm, I feel very privileged to be participating in this sort of this regeneration of human endeavor. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, both of you. And for my listeners who want to get a hold of your book, Longing, Stories of Racial Healing. How do folks get the book? Well, you can, um, you can go on to our website, which is www.storiesofracialhealing.com, and there you will find under events a map of the United States. And if you click on it, it will tell you where we're going to be. So one way you can get the book is to follow us around the country and try to catch us, and we will sell you a copy out of our trunk. 
But an easier way to get it is to follow the link on our website, which will take you to Baha'i Publishing, which will take you to Amazon.com, and you can order it directly on Amazon. You can also order it through Barnes & Noble, Borders, um, some, many bookstores carry it, or will all bookstores actually will order it for you. Well, Jean and Phyllis, thank you so much for sharing your story and your work, and I wish you the best of uh, success in your future endeavors in this most important work. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Phyllis and Jean Unterschutz, authors of the new book, Longing, Stories of Racial Healing. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
that separate us day by day. Love's the only way.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.